So I'm going to begin with the question, um, who saw a movie in the theaters over Christmas? Anybody? Anybody? Call out what your movie, what the movie was. What? Frozen 2. Frozen 2. Who saw Frozen 2? Who saw the Star Wars movie, Rise Star? Oh, yes, definitely. What? Knives Out. Little Women. Bombshell. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Who of you um, binged on Netflix or Disney Plus? So, uh, any of you see? Uh, any of you still watching The Mandalorian on Disney Plus? Oh, oh, just one, just a few. Okay. Do you want to know how I spent my Christmas holidays? I I crocheted this, everybody. And I just needed to work it into my sermon somehow because I'm so proud of it. I, you know what? I had so much fun making them. I bought more yarn today, so I will make any per order at my cost just because I love you. As a reminder of this sermon series, because I am working it in. I seriously am. Have you thought about the fact that we love stories? Have you thought about the fact that we need stories, that all these movies that we've seen, all these storylines that are, we're so familiar with, the Star Wars theme, the Frozen story, the Harry Potter series, they're all stories, and, and somehow in our human soul, we need them. Uh, as I was making Baby Yoda, I started thinking, hmm, so a baby with special powers <laughs> being you know, in like humble circumstances, being kept safe because it's like in danger. Hmm. Jesus? Moses? Yoda? I'm not the only one to, to notice that there might be a connection between our fixation with baby Yoda and, and relationship to Jesus. Maybe. I'll leave that hanging for you. But I hope that I've... Uh, reminded you about how stories mean something to us. And the story of the Bible, obviously, has meaning for us. And yet, sometimes when we think about the Bible as a story, although that's true, and that's what our series is going to be about in January, the the story, the great story that, that begins the whole Bible in Genesis, that's what we're going to be focusing on. But sometimes we have these unexamined, unquestioned expectations when we come to the Bible and we look at it as a story. What kind of book are we reading when we come to the Bible? Well, it depends on which book of the Bible we're looking at. And, and what questions are we bringing that, are ho- that we're hoping will be answered in the Bible? We have to examine those questions because if we don't, We're going to have particular expectations about the story of the Bible that we'll be disappointed by. Because the story of the Bible, or Genesis, let's take Genesis as an example. Genesis is not a Marvel movie. Now, there are elements of, like, the action hero, kind of. There's, like, definitely, you know, some violence going on and maybe some people that you might depict as as heroes. But there are way too many loose ends and way too many various narrative arcs for it to actually feel like you're being part of a Marvel movie when you read the book of Genesis. Um, The book of Genesis also 
is not a science textbook. So as much as some people might want to ask scientific questions of Genesis, they will not find reliable answers because the book of Genesis is not a book specifically about how old the world is and how it was created. A little bit controversial perhaps, but that is my conviction and it's shared by many other um, Orthodox Christians around the world. So the Bible is not a Marvel comic or Marvel movie. Genesis is not a Marvel movie or Marvel comic. Genesis is not also a science textbook. And the Bible and Genesis is not a book just of moral instruction. Some of you who grew up in those awesome Sunday school rooms might remember what the acronym for the Bible is, B-I-B-L-E. Anyone remember? What does B-I-B-L-E stand for? Oh, it's there. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Actually not. You were led astray. Annie Faw, is that you back there? No, not you. Oh, it's even, okay, nice, Lucas. So I'm sorry to say there are moral, um, the book is a moral book for sure, but the book of the Bible is not a moral instruction manual. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. So what happens if we bring our expectations, our own questions that are unexamined, our own unexamined worldview to the Bible, and we, we see it as any of those things, well, then the Bible becomes either boring, because it's not a Marvel movie, and there's a ton of genealogies and a ton of things that we can't understand, so maybe the Bible is boring, or it's just dangerous, right? If we take the book of Genesis, for instance, as a book of moral instruction, and all the characters in it are doing things that we're supposed to be doing also, no. Definitely not. If we bring our own questions to the Bible and we find them unanswered, then it's easy to think maybe, as my uh, friends who wrote this wonderful little book called The Insect and the Buffalo, which is a book about how we read scripture well, they say if we bring those kinds of expectations, those unexamined expectations to, to the Bible, it's easy to think that God wrote the wrong book. God did not did not write the wrong book, friends. But the problem is with how we come to the Bible, with the questions that, that we have. And it's not to say that your questions are wrong, but it is to say that we should take our cues from, this, from the Bible first. What questions is this book seeking to answer? What, what kind of book, first of all, am I reading as I come to each of those 66 books in the Bible? And, and what questions is this book seeking to answer? Before I impose my questions on that book, what, what are the questions that that book is seeking to, answer, seeking to answer? Reading the Bible does require some work, but it's not impossible. It's not so hard to do that only super smart scholars or pastors like Cam or Rod or John can do. No. This is a task for all of us in community, and it's an urgent task, especially in these polarized times. Reading our Bibles well, with intelligence, with intentionality, with thoughtfulness, with humility, those things are essential to our world right now. It matters that we do this well. It's never been more important, I think. 
And so that's one of the reasons why for this month of January, we're going to kind of dip our toes in the book of Genesis, specifically in in the chapters 1 to 11, because in this vast, wide-ranging story of the Bible, how a story starts is important, right? And we're very familiar, I know, with those first 11 chapters of Genesis, but they do... uh, do they do form a really important foundation for us. And so that's what we're going to be doing in January. Sunday mornings in January, specifically, we're going to be talking about, hey, what is this story about? How do we read it well? And what difference does reading this story make in our lives? And so as you can see uh, from the newsletter that we've distributed today, uh, we've got different different stories that we think the Genesis uh, first chapter, first chapters of Genesis are talking about, and we're going to have different people sharing their convictions and their knowledge around that. Specifically, uh, the one that I'm looking forward to is Ian Proven from Regent College joining us on the 19th to talk about the story of God's image, which is one of the stories that Genesis chapter 11 tells us. So Sunday mornings, what is the story about? But also, I want you to mark in your calendars Thursday evenings. Have we talked about Thursday evenings in here? Yes, Thursday evenings on the back here. So what? Genesis, so what? Ian Proven is going to be leading us in a bit of a conversation and a dialogue around how we live into this book called Genesis. What might it look like for us to try and live well by this particular story? So the dates are there. They're starting, I think, Thursday evenings, the third week in January. Please mark your calendars. It's going to be a wonderful learning and um, collaborative kind of discussion time. Location TBA. Uh, Our desire is actually for our youth to be involved as well. So So we're doing it on a Thursday night, which is normally a youth night. And we're looking for a location that's going to have enough room for youth as well as adults. So it might possibly be at Sutherland Church where our youth have been meeting, but I will get back to you on that next week to tell you exactly where. All right, so hopefully I've whetted your appetite a little bit for what the book of Genesis m- might be about. I also recommend to you, um, and this is your cue for queuing up the video, Jan, the videos produced by an organization called The Bible Project they do some fine work in helping us to understand both the big picture of scripture and the specifics of every book. And so I thought that it would be great, before I speak anymore, for you to watch this video on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. There's going to be so much there that you're going to want to watch it again, and you can do that on the your own time. The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world. And they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf. Which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. 
God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden, like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops. And there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. 
And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1-11 through is all about. A lot to take in there. But such a valuable summary of the trajectory of those first 11 chapters. And so in the last five minutes, I just want to throw out, by way of introduction, some, some basic questions that those first 11 chapters seem to ask and offer you a little answer. It might feel in the next little five, five minutes like, I'm, like you're drinking from a fire hose, but it's okay. Just let it wash over you. Uh, what I want you to see is that this idea of stories that we live with, the Bible so often offers us a counter story, a countercultural story, a counter story to those dark voices that we hear in our heads, or a counter story to what the world might tell us. So, the first question I think that the book of Genesis seeks to answer is who is God? Some people might tell us that the story of God points to a punishing, vengeful God, or a distant God, or a God that doesn't even really exist, a God that was just made up by people. But this story, the story of Genesis, tells us that God is a creator who loves their creation. 
And we can point at all kinds of different verses for that to be true. And I'm not even going to read them all. You can just see them all on the screen there. That one from Genesis 2, chapter 7, chapter 2, verse 7. And then the rest of them, Jan, I think, following after that. All of those scriptures demonstrate a God who doesn't give up on his creation, a God who seeks to redeem, a God who seeks to protect, a God who wants good for his creation. God loves his creation. That's who God is, a creator, a loving, merciful creator. And who are we? Some people might tell us a story that as human beings, we have limitless potential, that we're intrinsically good. That's one view. Another view might say that humans are desperately wicked and intrinsically bad. And neither of those stories are the story that Genesis tells us. The book of Genesis and those first 11 chapters tell us that we are God's image bearers that our defining quality is that we bear the image of our creator. We are fallen image bearers, and there are consequences for the things that we've done wrong, consequences for our sin, but our defining quality, our dignity, every human being on this earth created by God has the dignity of being created in God's image. Each of us, each life precious because we are made by God and created in God's image. God created man in his own image and God saw that we were good, very good, in fact. Who is God? God is good and loving and merciful. Who are we? We are God's image bearers, each of us the dignity of being created by a loving God and bearing God's image. So what's the problem? That's the next question. What's the problem in this world? Well, there are all kinds of diagnoses for what is wrong with the world, but I submit to you that most of the things that we would point to as being wrong with the world, most of them are probably only symptoms, and we haven't quite got to the cause. And the root cause in this video, the video suggests that the root cause is that we as human beings tried to define what was good apart from God. Another way of saying it, using that word shalom that I like to use, is that we as human beings tried to grab at our own shalom. God offered us shalom, and we said, no, we're going to get this shalom ourselves. And like a lot of things that we think we want or we think we need or we think we deserve, we grab at them and they somehow just dissolve in our hands. That thing that Adam and Eve wanted, well, it was partly true because they did have a knowledge of good and evil that they didn't have before. So the serpent's words were true. And yet, something about what they wanted just dissolved in their hands. When we grabbed for our own shalom, all the shalom between us, between us and ourselves, between one another and between creation, all those connected points fell away. All those connections were broken, and the disorder and the fallenness began. That, 
That's the problem, my friends, a lack of shalom that, that we created, that, that we broke. We grabbed at something for ourselves. We tried to define what was good apart from God, and that is at the root of the problem. How do we fix it? Well, friends, we ourselves don't fix it. But we can have the confidence that even here at the beginning of the story, God has a solution. And we don't understand all of what the solution entails yet, but we get a taste of it. We get a taste of it in those mysterious words from God when he speaks to Adam and Eve and he says, I will put enmity, well actually he's speaking to the serpent here, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Someone is coming. Someone is coming who will somehow shift this balance of power. Someone is coming who will make things right. And we have a bigger clue as to what this solution of God looks like in Genesis 12, which is a little bit beyond the purview of this series that we're going to be doing in January. And yet, it's that hinge story that the video that we looked at talks about. This promise that God declares to Abraham. Abraham is the embodiment of the promise the embodiment of the blessing. God extends his blessing to his people, to Adam and Eve and all creation at the beginning, and this blessing will continue even in the midst of our fallenness, even in the midst of the consequences of our sin. God still endeavors to bless and to bring shalom. And so his words to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How do we fix this problem? Well, God has a solution. It's going to come through a person, and we know that person is coming in Christ. But we know also that we are invited to participate in that solution. It doesn't all rest on us, but we get to participate in that solution. And so having run through all those questions and all those simple answers, I invite you just to take a moment to sit with the questions and the answers and to wonder to yourself which one of those questions and answers can make meaning of your life today. Perhaps you need to know who God is today. Perhaps you need to remember that God is good and loving. That God created you and cares about you. Perhaps you need to remember who God is, that you are created in God's image. That there are characteristics about you, your creativity, your, your love for others, your gentleness, your compassion, your generosity. All those things are characteristics that you share with your heavenly father, that you are created in God's image and that all people are created in God's image. Or maybe you need to remember what the problem is. That the problem is that we try to define what is good apart from God or that we try and seek our own shalom without regard to anyone else or to God. Or maybe you need to remember that God has the solution to the problems of this world, that God 
has brought redemption and is bringing redemption, that God invites our participation in those solutions, but it doesn't just rest with us. So Robbie, as you come, would you please come and lead us in worship? I'll give you just a few moments, Robbie, as you come and set up. Just take a few moments and sit with those truths and consider which one you want to hang on to today, which story you want to live by today.